Okay, right, it's uh, five past eight according to my other laptop, which has hopefully given everyone in the UK time to uh, rightfully so clap our NHS and all the carers out there. Um, so um, yeah, obviously on behalf of OneChat Live, um, then thank you NHS and carers and everybody who's looking out for anybody else out there. It's weird times we're living in. We're not gonna dwell on it tonight. It might come up in topic, but we're gonna try not to. Uh, but obviously we recognize that it's a difficult time for everyone but that's what we're trying to do here at OneChat Live as always we're trying to especially in these times provide some CPD and um, free CPD so it's not a massive expense course you're paying for and um, just to help um, not just physios and chiros and other healthcare uh, practitioners but just runners and triathletes just get their hands on some useful information so um, that's why we're here and this is episode 42 of OneChat Live um, it's been a month actually since the uh, COVID-19 special we did with Adam Meekins and Mike James. Um, it feels a lot longer than a month, which isn't something normally I say. Normally time flies, but I think we could all appreciate that time's going very slowly at the moment for obvious reasons. Um, so it was uh, in the UK, it was March the 23rd when Boris Johnson kind of put us down into our kind of semi-lockdown. Fortunately, we are still allowed out for a one day of exercise. And I've been championing that since the beginning with my daily runs and post run ramblings from out there in the wind and the rain. Um, and sometimes the sun, because I really am still very conscious that people should celebrate that fact and take advantage of the fact that we are allowed to get out and do some mental and physical exercise for that hour. Obviously show distal social distancing, don't touch stuff, wash your hands when you get in. But I really, I think I'm over it now, but I was really worried at one stage that it was going to be a total lockdown and people not even allowed out to do exercises. And I saw that as a very slippery slope. So um, do who knows how long it's going to go on for. But if you are interested in, I mean, it's given me so much pleasure to see a few people have emailed me thanks to my kind of post run ramblings. They've got back into running. They've got their mojo back and even people who have started running because they've got time in their hands. They're conscious they're sitting around. They're brain is doing 100 miles an hour and they've actually found discovered running which is probably the best gift i can give anyone in their lives so um uh if you're interested in those it's on youtube again it's all free it's just ramblings from me talking about uh, the pitfalls of running what to do if you get niggles and pains and so forth right um i've got a huge crib sheet tonight because my guest is just kind of fortunate i've had half an hour to to calm down now and realize he is actually human but um, I'm very excited to bring you um, him very shortly. But before I do, let's just make sure that um, we say thank you to the sponsors of the podcast, who are the Brighton Beard Company um, at www.thebrightonbeardcompany.co.uk. And uh, don't forget that if you do um, want to be at home on lockdown, but still take care of yourself, if you're the Hisuit person, then uh, yeah, you can use RCL15 to get 15% off all your balms and oils and brushes and all that other beautiful little things which we can use um, to feel good about ourselves. Um, so yeah, www.thebrightonbeercompany.co.uk and it's international of course, and especially during COVID-19, they're doing all sorts of deals on delivery charges and discounts and stuff. So do give them a look if you are of the Hisuit type. Right. 
I don't want to talk about anything else now apart from just introduce you to our guest. I'm very, very excited. Um, he's definitely one of the shoulders, set of shoulders who I've stood on um, back in the day. Um, and I love the way in his book, I'm talking about Todd Hargrove, by the way, in case anyone's not aware yet from the publicity. But um, I love in the way in the book and who he acknowledges. You've got the Greg Layman's there, the Jason Silvernails. You've got Diane Jacobs, um, Paul Ingraham. And these are all people who I put Todd with, and yet he's saying thank you to them. And as always, I don't know if it's on purpose, but the people I always have in one chat live, I admire them so much for their modesty. And there is no doubt that Todd is definitely one of the pioneers in explaining and helping therapists and runners um, understand modern pain concepts and the relationship it has with movement. So I'm very excited to bring Todd your way. Um, in case you're not aware that Todd uh, released in 2014, A Guide to Better Movement, fantastic book. If you have, if you're a therapist and you work with someone in pain, and you haven't got it, it needs to be on your shelf. Get that now, it's on Amazon.co.uk. It needs to be there and it's a very decent price because it's like five years old now. Um, Todd made us wait five years, but he's got a new book out when it came out last year called Playing With Movement. And that's essentially what we're going to talk about today. Um, if you haven't read them yet, you can't get the Audible version in the UK for um, Playing With Movement, which meant that I had to read a book for the first time in about two years. Uh, but that's fine. It was interesting turning a page again. Uh, but it is available on Amazon.co.uk if you're in the UK. And again, you won't be disappointed. Right. Rather long introduction, but I can't think of a person who deserves it more. So, without further ado, allow me to bring up Mr. Todd. There we go. Hi, sir. Fine, thank you. How are you? Thanks for having okay. me. Okay, I'm sorry to leave you waiting down there in the lobby for ages, but um, it's been a month since the last one. I also had I needed to build it up a little bit because I'm very excited that you're in, you're in here today. No problem. Um, at all. The, the, I think we talked off air and uh, yeah, I can't believe that Podchat Live have got um, someone you mentioned in your book, uh, Paul Ingraham is over on the other channel. They're on ITV, we're BBC, but on ITV at this very moment in time, there's Paul Ingraham talking about stretching, I think, with uh, with Griff and Craig Payne. Um, and there was people on Twitter going, oh my God, I'm torn. What do I do? What do I do? Don't make me choose. Um, so um, yeah, I've obviously got to get my diary together with Griff. I apologise for that um but as todd in his magnificent kind of king solomon way just said well we're both be saying the same thing anyway there's no problem <laughs> yeah what, what an amazing comment so todd thanks so much for joining us i really do appreciate it um where are you at the moment uh seattle seattle beautiful um and what time of day is it there uh just about noon just about noon so normally this question has a little bit more of an interesting answer but in our current situation I, I kind of ask what would you be doing normally if you weren't talking to me on cam but i guess you'd is there anything you'd be doing normally what would you be doing this uh, time maybe I'd, well, I'd i'd probably be writing something or uh right now i'd be uh you know helping homeschool the kids a little bit or maybe going out for a walk or a run or something like that or a workout what's the situation in seattle you're still allowed out for exercise is there like a certain time or yeah we're, doing... we're it's less restrictive than you guys i mean we we can pretty much do what we want in the outdoors we can we, it's not just once a day we can go out as many times as we want uh the parks and national parks are about to open up again they were kind of closed down but uh we we don't have many businesses open but we, we can walk around and run around outside yeah that's cool it's kind of it's always struck me as weird because the the 
the rules are very different in the states aren't they depending on where you go to you get complete lockdown i think in some states and other ones you're allowed a lot of freedom so yeah we don't no... have a national we don't have a national uh or level of organization that the organization is all state by state and they're kind of doing similar things but in some ways they're different it's probably quite a good thing that you aren't controlled um, centrally from your, from your <laughs> national government. <laughs> you should be yeah. objecting detergents or something. <laughs> Let's not get political. Now, I don't know what your political persuasions are, so I'm not going to go down that road. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can guess, but I'm not going to. You can guess. Um, but anyway, yes. So um, just a comment here from people. If you are watching this live, um, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, Mike James is in the room. Um, evening both. Looking forward to this one. Love Todd's work. Innovative. Innovative, of course. It's a great word, Mike. Um, and ahead of the game. Definitely two words I would definitely put. Um, uh, this is a podcast as well. So if you are listening to the recording on, on your favourite podcast app, then um, I will try and remember that. Um, there are a few pictures and diagrams and photos I'm going to put up. But do excuse me if I leave you a little bit in the dark. And I will try and remember that. But I do encourage you, if you do enjoy the show, then there's always a visual element. Todd is sitting there with a particularly well-clipped beard at the moment, well-groomed, which the Brian Beer Company would be proud of. So, um, yeah, there is always a visual bonus. And, of course, you get the chance to ask Todd questions in person. So um, do try and join us if you can, 8 o'clock. Um, well, at the moment it's BST, but sometimes it's GMT. I haven't got a clue. 8 o'clock in England, that's what time we go on. Um, so, Todd, let's start with you've got... I like to think that I'm going to bring you to people who don't know you. So forgive me if I go over questions you've you've had before, but you've got quite an interesting introduction to what you do now because before it was totally different, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I started out my career as an attorney and I did that for about 10 years. And then after that, I got out of that. And then I got into manual therapy and movement therapy. And uh, eventually I started writing and people started reading and then I was speaking and then uh, well, I started writing a blog and then I, and I eventually wrote books. And wasn't there, was there, what was your, your introduction was pain was personal experience, wasn't it? Yeah. When I was an attorney, I was having some pain and it was kind of impacting on my quality of life. And so I got really motivated to learn about it and try to solve it through self-help. I went to the physio. I didn't get a good result. I started trying things on my own. This is like in the early 2000s um, when yoga was starting to get popular and kettlebells and the idea of functional training. And I was interested in that stuff too because I was playing sports. I was competing at squash and I was just really interested in the idea of like applying scientific principles to get more coordinated. You know, I mean, for a long time there was this idea that um, in the gym, you can get bigger and stronger. But around the early 2000s, people started to think about, hey, how can we get you know, more coordinated too? Can we work on general movement patterns? So that idea was really interesting to me. And then I saw that idea also with the physical therapist. So this idea of moving better and feeling better and movement patterns and pain, are those things connected? Could I work on those at the same time? The whole idea was really interesting to me. Uh, enough so that I, you know, quit my law job to go into something where I could study those and put those two together because I was really successful in getting out of pain. I was in a lot of pain. I thought it was because I was getting older and then I was out of pain and I was like, wow, it's not just about getting older. This is something you can change. Uh, I want to help other people with this as well. So was there, you make it sound as if there was 
one particular thing that got you out of pain? It wasn't any one particular thing. It was probably lots of different things. Like I said, I was interested in yoga. I was doing corrective exercise kind of stuff, functional training kind of stuff, uh, stretches. I was doing uh, Feldenkrais method kind of stuff. So more mindful movement things, resistance stuff. I was into general fitness, um, you know, lifestyle modifications. And just over time, I, you know, over the course of years, I made a lot of progress to where I had like no pain at all and was feeling great compared to really not feeling well and everything in my life feeling affected, you know, like a sitting in a movie theater was something I didn't look forward to or going on a plane ride or a car ride or sitting in the chair all day. But all that really changed a lot. I think that shows very much in your writing. I can think of a couple of other people as well who have, have got into this industry through personal experience and discovering that the stuff they were told to do to get out of pain didn't really tick all the boxes for them. So I think it's quite a powerful um, yeah, reason for people like you becoming so successful. I suppose your gift to the gab with being a lawyer, I don't know what type of lawyer it was, helped you in, in explaining and public speaking. And that was not a problem for you. It just came naturally, did it? Yeah, I think I think the lawyer background helped uh, me start writing about some of this kind of stuff um, that, you know, the, the things that I would write about in my blog, you know, stuff about the science of pain or how pain relates to movement. Uh, it was stuff that was well known uh, in the research community, but maybe not as uh, well known in the community of people that were, you know, in practice and certainly not amongst lay people. So I thought my job is, OK, I can take complex material and kind of translate it down uh, to people that don't have as much familiarity with it. So now this stuff is more readable, more understandable, more easy to communicate. So that there's kind of a lawyer skill involved there. Hmm. So I thought I, I could be useful in that capacity. It's not, I'm not generating ideas. I'm not inventing them. I'm just taking stuff that's already pretty well vetted on a research level and making it more accessible. I think that you were, because I remember first stumbling upon you, I can't remember where or what, I don't know how I stumbled upon you, but I remember it was quite ahead of its time. It was definitely um, alongside other people like Paul Ingram and Greg Lehman, people who you said you acknowledge in the book. There was a around maybe 2004, five, just people doing these blogs in the background, which was almost like kind of the what do they call it? The kind of the black internet or the dark internet or something where you really had to know about it to find it. And it was quite revolutionary yeah. at the time. Um, yeah, so, blogs, were, blogs were a much bigger deal back then. Mm -hmm, hugely. Now it's almost the opposite effect. Everyone can blog and everyone puts out all sorts of information. But back then it was, yeah, you were definitely um, one of the forefathers in, in making therapists go, actually, that's interesting. I've never thought yeah. of that. Um, so yeah. yeah there, was, there was a lot of, uh, you probably remember the Soma Simple Forum mm where a lot of physios would talk about this stuff and they talk about their dissatisfaction with the current state of physio and how it didn't conform with the research that much. So there was all these great ideas out there, but they're, they're kind of embedded in these dialogues that are hard to follow. So I was gonna pick using good stuff out of that and put it into a digestible format in blogs. Yeah, okay. it, was, it, was, it was amazing. And you continue to do so. It's brilliant. I love the stuff you produce. It's, it's actually one of those people, and I don't just want to make you your head swell up here, but just for people who aren't following Todd already, he's one of the few people like five or six ones I've got highlighted on Twitter or Facebook where you see someone's released a post. It's like, oh, wow, 
okay uh, i need to make some time for this i want to read it it's engaging not just the content it's just the way you deliver it is exceptional it's great it's kind of very Thanks good so again i do thank you that's amazing i'm just saying that not just to make you feel special i hope it does but just for anyone out there who's not following todd who hasn't got told in their list of oh actually this is was it facebook gives you something like 30 feeds you can put as priority and the rest you don't even see and so many people right. these days have got four thousand friends on facebook and you only see about 20 percent of what they put out if that so yeah. um yeah you really need to use that top most important feed first of all make sure todd is in it people um let's go straight then to your book it did take i'm interested why the five years between the two books is there a particular reason for that or yeah, was just it la laziness laziness <laughs> slow writing <laughs> well i mean i wrote i wrote the first one and when i wrote the first one i didn't um i didn't have a plan to write more i didn't know what the response would be so I mean, it was kind of the same thing as with my blog. When I started writing the blog, I didn't know that anyone would respond to it. The blog posts were supposed to be summaries of information that I could give to clients or friends to answer questions that come up a lot. And to my surprise, a lot of people read it and shared it. So at some point, the blog was kind of big with a lot of information in it. And then that book, that Guide to Better Movement, is kind of like a summary of my first five years of blogging, all of the best stuff organized into a coherent whole. I didn't know whether people would respond to it, but they did much more than I expected. So within a year, I was like, well, I, I guess I could write another one, but there was no idea there or motivation. And at some point that came up and I felt motivated to write another one. And then once I did, it, it took longer than I thought. And, and, and I'm kind of mad as, as long as it took, but part of it was obsessing over having things perfect when it was really probably good enough early on. That's very interesting. So it's not that you waited five years and then thought, I'll write another one. It was like maybe you waited a year and then it was like it was more challenging to do the next. It's like the part two of the film was more challenging for you. I never even yeah. crossed my mind. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially after the first one was so well received. It really is. Again, it's confirmation bias. But for the people who I hang out with, I know it's one of the principal ones, which is never put into a box. It's never like I need some more space on my shelf. It's always going to be there. Um, and so it should be. So again, talking to people out there, you can see it on the screen here, those of you watching the live feed, um, a guide to better movement. I think it's well cheap, it's too cheap. <laughs> it's too cheap on Amazon.co.uk at the moment. Um, it's a crime, but um, it's definitely worth buying. Um, and uh, yeah, you'll read it from back to, it's one of those books you'll read from back to front in kind of a few nights. And it's such, also, it's, it's such a good reference book to dip back into, um, when you have got clients who maybe aren't quite working or you've forgotten some stuff. I think we talked off air, I had a physio the other day who was having a problem with a client who just was having pain when they were sitting and and it was I asked a few questions and stuff. And then one thing your book, your first book is very great on and, and the exercise in the back is take it down to the ground. If someone's struggling with a, a what we typically think of a, an entry point exercise like a squat against the wall or just a squat or a lunge, and they can't really do that and symptoms are still aggravated a lot of physios and all sort of healthcare protectors they don't think about taking it down to the ground do they taking gravity out yeah. of the equation yeah so in, in in this book there at the end of it there's a bunch of uh kind of exercises that are mostly involved doing a bunch of kind of mindful variable movements on the ground stuff like rolling or crawling or simple stuff like that based on the feldenkrais method which is a uh, who's a guy who kind of developed all these lessons um, but the idea is when you're on the ground, when you go really slow, you can maybe access 
some kinds of movement varieties, some patterns of movement that you can't find when you're standing, because when you're standing, you always have to do the job of, I mean, it, it's easy enough to stand, but, you, but you're doing more work than when you're lying down. When you're lying down, you don't have to worry about staying balanced. You don't have to worry about not falling. You're right on the ground. So you can maybe move in some ways that you haven't explored for a really long time. And that's the idea is to explore new ways of doing kind of the same thing, maybe find a, a way to improve what you're doing. Which leads us very much to the next book. And I think that's the power of, for me, and I see it in patients' eyes of taking it down to the ground. It is talking of Feldenkrais. It does turn you a little bit more like that child lying on the ground or that baby who's learning how to roll over. Um, and it, it does give, even though you're an adult, it teaches you how to take advantage of that same kind of investigatory process of learning how to actually roll, where you are looking, focusing, stretching, moving, and allowing your body to follow. Um, so Feldenkrais yeah. played quite a big part in your methodology, did it? And is it still do it? I did a, I did a, a training in Feldenkrais, uh, and uh, it definitely had a big impact on the way I think about things in, in kind of a number of ways. One is that in Feldenkrais, uh, his idea is that when you're doing kind of most kinds of movement exercises or manual therapy or movement therapy, what's if you feel better and move better when you're done, it's much more likely that you've made some kind of a change in the nervous system than any kind of structural part in the body. So he said, I'm after flexible brains, not flexible bodies. And what he means by that is um, the nervous system in the brain has more control over the way you move and feel than you probably imagine. So if you get down on the ground, you roll around, you do some stretching, and you're more mobile afterwards, it's not likely that you change the structure of your body. What you changed is the way that your nervous system is perceiving the body and what it's allowing the body to do. So that's one way that Feldenkrais is really influential to me is that kind of uh, neurocentric way of looking at things, which gives you insight into a lot of stuff uh, about why why these interventions actually work. Yeah, brilliant. That's definitely for me, and I think a lot of other therapists, that's the take home. That's what this first book of yours really delivers, because you can watch Laura Mosley and the other experts talking about pain and modern concepts and pain science. But where I think you filled a little bit of a gap was translating that information into learning how to move differently learning how to either rehab or develop yourself in sport. Um, and it's, yeah, that's for me, that's exactly what your your first book did. And so let's, um, I'm just gonna say hello to a few people in the room again. Again, thanks for joining us. Terry Vaughan, nice to see you here. Jim Gare, whose real name is Russell. I know that now, don't call him Jim anymore. Hi, how are you doing? Mike James, obviously lovely to see you here, mate. Um, Luke Davis, a pleasure to see you here. Thank you much for joining us. Luke says, very much influenced by Todd throughout university. That's always great to hear. Daniel Gerber, fantastic um, non-osteopath who um, I'm interested in. Any questions you have, Daniel, you far away because I love the questions you're asking at the moment in the journey you are in your practitioner's life where you are at the moment. Um, Steve Capoblanco, Capobianco, can't see with my short eyesight. Um, Todd's ability to dissect the research. Let's put it up on the screen. This looks like a good comment. He's got a pig as a logo. That's fair enough. Uh, Steve Capobianco says, Todd's ability to dissect the research to apply to your movement practice is amazing. I look forward to this discussion. With Thank you, you Stephen. <laughs> Do you know Steve the pig or is it new to you? I, I know Stephen. He, do, he doesn't look like that in real life. He <laughs> invited me out to Colorado to speak at a conference he had out there. 
and he gave me a, a shirt which became one of my favorite shirts and you can see it in a lot of the pictures of me online and I'm, I'm whenever i'm on facebook with in a picture you know steven's like that's my shirt <laughs> that's late to fame i dress todd that's good that's cool uh carl peppermint hackett is also here off to amazon i go then yeah carl kyle i can't believe you haven't got the first book mate don't let me down i respect you as a therapist but if you haven't got the first one you've just kind of slipped down now how did you miss that anyway and nikki Sherman, hi as well if you do have any questions directly for todd then feel free to send them now and that's the joy of joining us live and also thanks for coming to us and not pod chat live don't tell them that but thanks for choosing todd over paul ingraham because there's a bit of a <laughs> competition going on here you can watch pulling them on the catch-up don't worry anyway let's go back to right so we've bigged up your first book a lot and i really encourage people to have a look at it um and then we come to your your second book how do you think before we go into the contents of it what do you think of one or two of the biggest differences between your second book and the first one what were your intentions or what do you think the outcomes are uh second book is a little bit um broader in the in looking at the kinds of interventions that might help you with pain or function. So I said the first one is about, it's kind of a neurocentric perspective. So it's about how to improve, you know, like your perceptions and your coordinations and, and the body's software. Um, and it kind of ignores questions about how to improve the hardware. There's lots of information about there about how to have bigger, stronger muscles or have better cardiovascular health. And that's like improve what I think of as improving the hardware of the body. The second one, is much broader in looking and including that kind of thing. And then it's got a different uh, way of organizing uh, the stuff. It's organized around this idea of play. And also there's a theme of, of appreciating the complexity of the body and trying to relate those two things. Definitely. And and following up on what you just said, this complexity is such, a, I think one of the distinctions you make, I can't remember which chapter it is, but if a therapist to understand the difference between complex and complicated i think that has a great knock-on effect in delivering rehab and delivering movements so can you say in your own words yeah what is the difference and what implications that has yeah when i that, that was actually kind of an inspiration for the book when i first read about this distinction i thought it was profound and helpful and applicable to lots of things and also therapy so in everyday life we use the words complex and complicated basically synonyms, but people who study complexity science draw an important distinction here. So, um, and you can illustrate that with an example. Complicated things are usually things like machines. So examples of complicated things or complicated problems would be like uh, DVD players or rocket ships or cars. Uh, in, in dealing with complicated problems, science has made this incredible advance in being able to solve these problems. We can put a rocket ship on the moon. Complex problems are a little bit different. Complex problems are problems uh, where, where there's so much information, there's so much dynamism in the system, there's so many interacting factors uh, that the system is very, very hard to predict what it's going to do. It's, maybe it's a self-organizing system. So an, an example of a complex adaptive system would be like, uh, a toddler. Um, you cannot control a toddler. You cannot predict a toddler in the same way you can a rocket ship. <laughs> if you look at complex health problems like diabetes, obesity, and autoimmune disease, these are areas where scientific expertise can't make anywhere near as much progress as it can in like fighting infections with drugs or doing uh, uh, an acute surgery. So 
we can accomplish medical miracles when we're dealing with complicated health problems. And here, expertise is incredibly valuable. But uh, with these more complex health problems, we don't make as much progress uh, by with drugs or with surgery or something like that. Then there's lots of uncertainty. It's a very different kind of situation. We want to use these scientific techniques to solve these complex problems. But as it turns out, we really just have to um, kind of explore on our own, using our own common sense to do it. Experts are of less um, assistance to us. So uh, again, to use the toddler example, you could be a world-class expert in studying the behavior of, to of toddlers, right? But, but you're not gonna be much more successful than just someone who's applying common sense and <laughs> trying to get a toddler to be a happy, healthy kid. And I think a lot of the problems we're trying to solve in the clinic, like how to get someone out of back pain, it's more of a common sense, intuitive, exploratory, getting to know the person type of a process than this highly scientific measure everything, science the shit out of everything, sending a rocket ship to the moon kind of process. And we've gotten confused about that. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, I think it's a really, it's one of those kind of, if the coin can drop, if a therapist, particularly a young therapist, or even an old therapist who hasn't quite shifted their thinking yet, if they can make that distinction between understanding a humans are complex and a car is maybe complicated, then it has massive ramifications on how you're going to present problems. I like the quote you use in the book, um, and it's more to do with variability, but I think it covers the same ground where if you take a tire of a car, it can't move at all. But a dog with three legs learns to get on pretty well. That's kind of like thanks to the difference between complex and complicated, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And also the, the, the difference between machines and complex adaptive systems. Now, in some ways, people are like machines. We obey, we obey the laws of physics. You know, biomechanical analysis of the body can be helpful. Uh, but we're not exactly like machines. We're, we're, we're like Greg Lehman's got a good phrase. We're not machines. We're ecologies. Mm. And he's just pointing out that, you know, part of what makes a uh, an ecology healthy is diversity, biodiversity. That makes it robust. That makes it resilient. So whenever we take a step, whenever we run, even though it kind of seems like we're repeating the exact same thing, we're always varying a little bit the way we get the job done. That's what makes us resilient. That's what allows us to learn through trial and error what works better. That makes us robust against injury. Uh, so when machines are engaged in any kind of variable behavior, we know that there's a dysfunction there. So a machine, whenever it's, it's supposed to repeat the same thing every time, a tire is always supposed to move in exactly the same groove. If it's wobbling around, that's a bad thing. With humans, it's exactly the opposite. You always want a little bit of play in the joints, a little bit of variability there. That's what makes you resilient and robust because if one thing's not working, you can do something else. So the whole, I'm listening to that and thinking, and this is off the top of my head, so this isn't my crib sheet. Does it make sense that complex organisms can play, but complicated ones can't? Because to play, you actually need that ability to move with what's around you and kind of suddenly change or investigate. Whereas a complex machine, like a car, a car's just going to, you put your foot down, it's going to go faster. You take your foot up, it's going to go slower. Is that Yeah, yeah. So, so play, play is a natural behavior that all um, intelligent animals engage in when they're developing. And that's what trains them up to deal with an ever-changing uh, world. Now, if you're an animal that's going to live in a very predictable world and you've only got one or two relevant behaviors like an insect or an animal that's just really robotic, almost like a machine, 
they don't play. They're completely controlled by instincts. But if you're an animal, like especially like humans that are coming into an unpredictable world where there's variable challenges, those are the exact type of animals that spend the most time playing uh, when they're kids. And it's thought that this is kind of a training in dealing with unpredictable things, uh, an unpredictable world. So um, when you play, you, there's always some chaos involved in when you're playing. So that's why people play with balls. That's why people play with opponents, because you've got a ball that's going to bounce in unexpected directions. You're always going to be, there's always going to be an unexpected demand on your movement. If you play tag with someone, the person you're running around with is always running around in unexpected directions. If you're doing something that's always exactly the same each time, that's much less playful, that's much more like work, that's much more drudgery, you're not developing the skill of dexterity and adaptability. Yeah, no, brilliant. Um, and again, I think I'm going to try and pull it in now towards runners a bit. Obviously, in your book, you do have a chapter, especially the skill chapter, which is based on like, what if you are training for a particular skill or a sport or something? But I think some of the runners, when I have introduced them this idea of play, thanks to you, they kind of have this idea. And I think you mentioned in the book that play is for kids. Right. And like I'm mature, but that's something which you kind of like clear up a bit in your book that when we talk about play, it's not saying you're going to have to go to a kid's playground, but you could probably go to an adult playground. So can you kind of like, yeah, in your own words, how, why is play not synonymous with immaturity? Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I'm not thrilled with the word play for that reason is because it kind of suggests let's engage in activities that are trivial or frivolous or childlike. Let's go skipping or do jump ropes or, or hopscotch or something like that. Uh, it's it's more about um, a certain way of, uh, one way to look at it is it's kind of a certain way of problem solving. So like uh, great artists or scientists, when they're dealing with a lot of uncertainty, they start kind of brainstorming and following their interest and their curiosity. If you don't have a map that tells you exactly where to go and what to do, you're gonna to have to gauge in a lot of exploration. So play is an exploratory way of doing things. It's kind of a curious way of doing things. Also really important, it means you're intrinsically motivated to do what you're doing. You're doing it just for the sake of that thing. You're not doing it to attain some external goal. So in terms of um, exercise or maybe running, there's some people out there running because they want to lose weight or they want to look good in a swimsuit or something like that. That's an external motivation. They're not going to be as motivated to run. They're not going to get out there and do as often as the people that run just because running is very meaningful to them. Now, uh, running is not necessarily a fun thing. A thing being fun is not the exact same thing as a thing being meaningful. There's a lot of things that people find very meaningful and very intrinsically motivating that are not necessarily just like a barrel of laughs. Powerlifting or running might be two examples of that. Uh, there's other kinds of intrinsically motivating things that are really, really fun, like surfing or golf or, for me, soccer or something like that. But you can have intrinsic motivation um, even if it's not a lot of fun, if it's really meaningful to you, if you just want to do that thing because it's that thing. Yeah, um, I was I was feeling a little bit offended offended inside when he said that running's not fun. I felt like I had to stand on a pedestal and kind of. Well, slap if it's your fun, face. that's even better. But <laughs> I I running is fun. <laughs> but it, it made me also think that maybe one of the mistakes, because we were talking a little bit off air about um, kind of the eighty twenty principle, Max Fitzgerald, and maybe to reduce the risk of injury and to maybe move better, 
then that's what runners should be doing. They should be making sure that 80% of the runs are actually fun, where they are actually not striving for a particular, I've got to get there in this time, where they are actually taking what's going around them and enjoying the sensation. Does that make sense? They would be playing a bit more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I make this distinction between play and work, and play is, you know, movement that are intrinsically motivating and variable and um, don't take that much discipline to complete versus work, which is boring and repetitive and highly prescribed, and it does take some discipline. Now, if you want to get to be a world-class runner, you're going to have to put in a whole hell of a lot of work. There's no doubt about it. Um, play just, just play and having fun will only take you so far. For most people, I think it'll take you to a good level of fitness and health. If that's your goal, that's just fine. If you have goals beyond that, you probably will have to make some plans and prescribe your workouts and count numbers and not just follow your feelings and stuff like that. Uh, but as you do that, you're going to start to compromise your general health, take yourself close to injury and find it hard to motivate yourself to continue. So I think as much as possible, your, your uh, workout should include things that you find fun. So, I mean, I do a certain amount of work to train for squash, and I know that I need to go into the gym and lift a certain amount of weights to, to stay safe. Uh, but when I do that, I try to, as much as possible, have exercises that are kind of fun to do. You know, you go into the gym some days, and some some exercises just look more attractive to me, like I kind of want to do that one, another one I'm dreading. Well, I'll spend half of the workout doing stuff that's not too taxing to me in terms of my willpower so that I've got can save up the willpower for that one thing that I really don't want to do. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I do I do think, like you mentioned, squash, where normally you're playing against another person. Running, we always talk about running as having a high instance of injury, depending on the studies you look at, it can be as like yeah. 30% or 40, 50% of runners and blah, blah, blah. And I think one of the factors is because you're by yourself, you're taking out a big element of play. Um, you can still play it depending on how you run and how you set your programming but maybe that's one of the reasons why the instance is so high because in any other sport you are filling yourself with stimulation and being sociable and reacting to somebody else and moving with your environment and but running can be if, if you just pound it out step after step especially if you're not varying routes a very i can't think of a non a more non-playful sport like you mentioned does that make yeah. sense yeah yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, when when you've got an opponent, they're interjecting uh, chaos and, and and automatic variability into what you're doing. And if you go out and run the same route every day by yourself, then that variability needs to come from like a conscious decision. Okay, today will be five miles, or the next day will be something else. I guess if you run with someone else, um, they're going to interject a little bit of. Um, automatic variability it reminds me of that what, what's that fartlek running doesn't that literally mean running play that's what i do actually people. i think you're right yeah I think, it's, it's yeah. something you do with other people mm. uh, and having the other people around gives you a chance to change your speed and respond to things in the external environment so you you might do things in a in a different way than if you were just on your own yeah no, that's interesting um, yeah I, I noticed it made me think when I think of because obviously I'm reading your book with a bias towards runners and working with runners and things and as a runner myself. But I do like the point you make about um, runners always looking at ways of preventing injury or reducing the risk of injury because you can't really prevent it. But you can reduce the risk and you make the very important thing that a lot of the steps we take to prevent injury, take the risk out of running. 
um, especially if someone's coming back from injury. And it's and it makes so much sense because unless you're putting risk into something, which which naturally you do with game, like you say, responding to chaos, then you're automatically lowering the chance of you not getting injured, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, could you repeat that again? I'm not totally sure I understood your question. So you mentioned Sorry. like you said you mentioned that the idea of involving risk so using children like you do in the book a lot right a child learning to walk example always involve risk okay yeah. it's the only way they reach new barriers and they're going to fall over a few times to pick themselves up and ride themselves but a lot of runners in an attempt to reduce the risk of injury they don't take risks anymore right right yeah i mean if you if you try to completely eliminate risk well that's a risk in itself because you don't subject yourself to the stress you need to to become stronger so, so in the book, I talk about this interesting connection between play and risk. Um, some people that study play and behavior in animals thinks it's, it can be kind of a form of stress inoculation um, that makes you more robust. So if you look at kids play, jump off of stuff. They run around in ways that it's likely to fall down. They climb trees. Um, people that uh, study free play in children believe that it's a way to, sub that, like they watch, uh, a guy named Peter Gray says, when you watch animals playing around, they, if they jump off something, they, mean, they don't even just jump off, they jump with a twist. It's almost like they're deliberately trying to create a little bit of risk so they can get information about what is safe to do, what's not safe to do, what am I capable of doing? Like they learn where the line is by stepping over it just a little bit. Hopefully not so much that you fall out of the tree and break your arm, but enough so that you get to know your limits and deal with um, your fears. Skateboarding or surfing, definitely examples of that. And in running, it's probably uh, involves, you know, uh, doing a, a challenging workout. You're, you're not going to be, you're not going to build yourself to get stronger unless you do something that risks injury just a little bit. And balancing that is probably what it's all about, right? It's tricky, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, if you're specific, if you're training for a race, there's not going to be much risk in a marathon or wherever the distance is. You're just running pretty much. You're going to take a few corners. There's not really risk. So I suppose runners think, well, why am I going to put variability into my run? Why bother if at the end result I'm training for is just running pretty much in a, a circle around a park or something as fast as I can? So how would you kind of, if somebody said that to you, why am I going to play if all I'm doing is trying to run around a park in a circle as fast as I can? Why should so I be playing? Why, why would you put variability in, into your yeah. running? Um, I think what, one reason is to, uh, that, you, that we like variability in activity is you, you develop a more generalized uh, and broader set of skills. So um, I'm not an expert in, in getting better at running, but I do know that uh, great runners practice uh, their speed work. They do their long, slow work, and they really benefit from doing a very wide range of speeds and times and intensities. And I understand that from like a general health and a general function uh, type of a situation. Uh, and I do know that that, um, that that is the agreed upon way to, to train for marathons, right? You wouldn't just run the same time and intensity all the time. And, and it's a mistake that's commonly made, right? That people tend to gravitate towards that, maybe a race pace or middle zone and they ignore, um, the incredibly high intensity sh short runs at high speed and they ignore the really slow long distance yeah definitely so without knowing it runners are playing anyway when they're doing their different sessions each week and doing some tempos and like you say some fart legs and they're already 
getting the reaping the benefits of playing as you describe in the book yeah even though they don't realize they're doing it yeah good answer i like that i hope some people out there have heard it let me just um we've gone back to complex a bit i mean chris kitson here is a wonderful i always call him young i think he's about 40 now but just looks youthful every time i say it, i always regret it but uh he's got a he's got a comment on here it's kind of a it goes back to complex but basically chris says my wife is extremely complex um which is kind of a subject i'm not sure todd's going to um be able to answer but then he follows that up with does complex sit with variability which i think we kind of covered um which he said uh, yeah he says pretty much answered thank you very much uh, but then he followed up with however my marriage is still extremely complicated and oh, that was mike yeah there's going to be jokes isn't there, about complexity and marriage but hey they will say that for another person the, the, the variability and complications in marriage uh, mike james actually says fart leg is swedish for playing with speed i believe oh yeah 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 i think i think i heard that i i should have yeah. i should have got into the book there it's a good it's a good little factoid i remember it's playing with something but yeah um mike's welsh so he's pretty on top of his uh where does language come from so yeah we'll take that as gospel then mike um flynn hall here i haven't read this question yet so i'm just putting it up there so it's always dangerous i do platform diving and it's fascinating and inspiring to watch young children dive who have a lack of fear of error and risk of injury yeah. well, i think that's one of the reasons kids have a big advantage in learn in motor learning over uh adults like me is that they can i mean we learn through trial and error and for them the errors are less expensive because they're well, in a lot of things, they're closer to the ground. They've got more mobile joints. They're just much li less likely to get injured uh, when they do their experimentations. So if you're someone who is um, well, like me, I never really got very good at acquiring any skills that have a risk of injury because I've always been averse. I've always been a little bit timid. It's just kind of my nature. So I did not get good at skateboarding or um, uh, lots of skills where you can fall down and get hurt. At soccer, I got good at the skills that were away from contact. I was never good at heading or at defense because there was a chance of getting hurt. But, you know, trapping the ball away from people, I acquired those types of skills. So I think your tolerance and ability to deal with risky situations is a huge predictor of your ability to acquire skill in those areas, in, in areas where there's risk. Definitely, yeah. There's a, there's, I mean, anyone who's reading your book will see the consistent comparisons with children we can overdo it a bit with kids, can't we? I mean, one of my personal things I don't like is like uh, the, 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 the child squat. Children can squat down so their bums touch the floor. So that's what everybody should be trying to do. And I think it's one of the challenges that's doing around. And actually some therapists who I really admire have been putting this challenge out there. In 30 days, your bum should be able to touch the ground because that's what kids do. It's a bit like All saying right. kids run on tiptoe. So we should all be four foot striking, but there are, we can go over the top, can't we? Where we try and do what children do. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in in the book, I frequently, you know, uh, taken, uh, I, I like to be informed by the way kids develop their skills um, or by what kind of movements are natural, like what hunter gatherers do, what we would do if there wasn't this modern world around that. I think that's an interesting perspective. You can get carried away with that as well. There's you know, the naturalistic fallacy that whatever's natural is good for you. It's not necessarily true. There's falling out of a tree is natural and breaking your arm, that's not good for you. But you know, climbing trees and not falling out is, is a natural thing and that's good for you. So I, I like looking at what kids do. I like what, what we do in natural situations but it shouldn't control your thinking too much. 
yeah, you can go over the top. Um, but that said, and to contradict myself, I've noticed with my own clients that with a lot of the exercises you've got in the back of your first book, it's incredible the variability and, and the adaptions people can make when they just become a little bit more mindful, particularly if there's some fear involved and they don't think that they can flex or extend the spine or you involve. I love that quote. I'm just trying to think of it while you were talking a while ago. Maybe you can think of it. I don't know. Some authors can't think of them. But what's the one about? It's something like to own a move. If you can breathe during a movement, then you learn that that's you owning the movement. Is that yours? Hmm. Um, I think, I think I've got something about there that in the book, like I, in, in the lesson on breathing, uh, I might make the claim. I think it's, it's kind of a yoga idea, you know, that these are all breathing exercises. Uh, Feldenkrais, this is something that Feldenkrais thought as well, is that you you, you can't really say that you, um, like you say, own a, a position or a movement and thus you can breathe through it. Mm -hmm. So he would often, during his movement lessons, he'd be curious, hey, did you just stop breathing? Well, that's a, that's a sign that you're under stress. You're not comfortable in the situation. Uh, he was into martial arts too. So he always wanted to like, there's a lot of situations where like in grappling, like you stop breathing. So yeah, he always yeah. wanted to be able to breathe. Yeah, judo, wasn't it? I think if I remember right. He was, he was, in, he was into judo, judo, but other stuff too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very influenced by that. Yeah, we're going, we're flicking back to the past book, but the, um, that's because I've had six years to read it and practice it. I'm sure in six years time, I'll be talking about your second book. But I think the breathing chapters are really good because again, I'm very cynical, especially my older age, but a lot of people I think overdo the intrinsic breathing thing and they concentrate too much on it unnecessarily. But for somebody who is, what I love about your first book is using breathing to practice movement of the spine, to, to feel different parts of your body. Well, what you tie up with actually kind of like unblurring neurotags and things and get rid of that kind of maybe that faded um, neural pathway in your mind by actually making your body move in different ways. Um, I think that's some fantastic stuff which can be achieved through breathing, which isn't in your second book so much, I don't think. But in the first one, it's quite heavy as a lot. Oh, more. yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a little lesson on breathing there and it was developed by Feldenkrais and it was, it's based on his study of, you know, breathing techniques in yoga and martial arts and stuff like that. And, and you know, uh, the way he looks at it, breathing is, uh, you know, it's moving muscles right around this part of your body that's really complex and it involves rib movements, it involves spinal movements, it involves diaphragmatic movements. And he kind of wants to see, hey, can you move your diaphragm without moving the spine? Can you move the ribs uh, without moving the spine? Can you integrate and differentiate all these different subtle joint movements and muscular activations that create the, you know, the physical act of breathing yeah that's uh, it's 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 great stuff your the, the last kind of five chapters of your book where you deal with things like posture structure i mean they are basically little mini you could do a whole podcast in each chapter easily where you mention a lot of the misconceptions about posture um, about flexibility I like what you say and I think it's particularly apt towards runners the difference between flexibility and mobility I'm always harping on with runners because a lot of runners feel that stretching is like the salvation of everything but what is how do you define the difference between flexibility and mobility yeah I, I define it as uh, and different people define it in different ways but I think most people are kind of getting at the same thing uh, flexibility is your range of motion at a joint how far you can go from a to b and mobility is your uh, is your ability 
to um, use relative end ranges of motion uh, in a practical, functional way. So maybe with speed, maybe with comfort, uh, with coordination, balance, stability, or strength. So I, 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 the analogy I use is like flexibility is like the length of the road and mobility is like um, how, how good is the highway at the end of the road? Is, the, is, mm -hmm. can you, is there a high speed limit? Is there parking there? Can, can you, are there shops there that you can go to? Very nice analogy. Yeah, that's very good. And your books are full of those ways of, um, I think one of the things I love about your books is you do manage to use language. We were talking about this a little bit before. You use language which therapists can then use to explain stuff to patients. You manage right. to, I love the way when you're talking about kind of getting rid of blurring or I think you use like a, a again, a road which has become overgrown with bushes and things. And what you're doing is the road's still there, but it's very difficult to get through now. And by doing certain exercises and mindful movement and stuff, then you're clearing the hedges and stuff out of the way and allowing the actual nervous signals to move down it. That's an analogy I've definitely used with um, people in the past where it's been at. Um, yeah, you've got a little knack for that. Um, but yeah, for running... It's, it's mostly just stealing from other people, you know? Yeah, if you'd have to say that on cam, you can kind of like just mention that in the small print at the back of your book. Um, but not everyone does it. That's the thing. Um, I think so. We we know the importance of to help people, particularly in pain. We like them to be able to use their own metaphors um, in order right. to overcome something. But I think it helps give them a few examples of how you can use an analogy. Like maybe the road thing works for you, but if someone doesn't drive or something, it doesn't mean anything. So they can in, kind of invent their own metaphors and their own kind of analogies for working it out and putting it into their yeah. own. Yeah, yeah. I like to see what their current idea is. And if there's anything right about it at all, then magnify it and expand on it instead of giving them a, and you know, if they've got no idea that's that's appropriate, you have to start them with a new one. And hopefully it's the one that a lot of people understand, but the best one is the one they've already got. Definitely, yeah. Um, look, we are getting towards the end. So I just want to reiterate again, anyone who's interested in buying the book, there is a fantastic chapter on structure, which again, it I'm going to say it goes over, but that would be unfair because there's so many therapists out there who don't understand all of the, you list the research fantastically. You give so many examples and um, you come up with the, you mentioned the fantastic um, table. I can't remember who it's by now, but showing um, the stages of gener degeneration and discs and things and the, and the spine in asymptomatic people without lower back pain. I mean, that when it came out, I can't remember the year it was now, was it 2005 or something? 2015, Brzezinski, I think. Was it 15? Was it that late? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, there's been there's been a lot of studies on this, but uh, that that, that chart I've got in there that shows, yeah. you know, by the time you're 50, here's your percentage and you've got. Yeah. So the chart is your percentage chance of having an objective finding on the MRI, uh, given that you've got no back pain at all by age 50. You know, there's like a 50 percent chance of a bulging disc and then it goes up from there and, you know, degenerative this. And, and uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool chart. It's something that. I remember when it came out, I thought it was before then, but yeah, I remember it's something that a few therapists thought that's going up in my clinic. That is, if they're going to have any posts in my clinic, let's take down the pictures of spines with red bulging <laughs> slip discs. Let's yeah. throw away my kind of knees with kind of, you know, uh, bits missing and taken to bits. And let's put up this poster showing how it's natural once you hit even 35, 40 to have things with sharp and MRI. And, but yeah, that whole, that whole chapter you've got on structure is a fantastic again, easily uh, put together, um, look at the research and how the, the lack of 
connection between um, structural abnormalities and pain. Um, so I do encourage Thank people you. to have a look at that. It's brilliant. And the same thing goes for posture and the evidence which shows that asymmetry isn't necessary. Say a little bit about asymmetry because it's something which, again, it comes and goes depending on social media's influences. But yeah. Well, I think it's uh, I think it's um, kind of uh, when it's that machine analogy again. When we when we analogize as too much to machines, you know, it, machines that work well should be in most cases perfectly symmetrical and, and symmetry asymmetry is a sign of an error. And we, um, you know, if you look at the actual skeleton of the body, it's not symmetrical. I mean, all of our bones, the, all of the shapes of things are, are shaped by these organic forces over time. And they're not like these interchangeable Ikea pieces that are all the same. They're, they're wonky, they're asymmetrical. Yeah, I've got a picture in one of the books where there's a, uh, there, there's a Gray's Anatomy picture of a uh, of a spinous process and so it's so you're looking at it and, and the spinous process is coming at you like that that all kind of bends off to the side um in any any part of your skeleton if you look at it it's it's not perfectly symmetrical and some people are more symmetrical than others but if you just kind of inspect your body parts that are easy to inspect left to right in terms of just the bony shape you'll see differences people's faces aren't the same from side to side uh so when you're in the clinic and you notice, or or anybody they notice, oh look, my my uh, range of motion on one side is not the same as the other. Well, you've got different hard bones on one side; they're not supposed to be the same. Your movement's not supposed to be the same. So we totally overrate symmetry as a um, something that we need to get in order to get better. Oh, and there's that great example of Usain Bolt. Have you seen that uh, cool New York Times? article on Bolt where they find out he's a little bit scoliotic and when he runs, he's kind of got a gallop. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's really lots cool. of examples, yeah. When he runs, he's got, he's got a very subtle kind of gallop where, where his left side's not doing the same as, as the right. And what the experts say is that's yeah, probably he's figured out how to run fastest for his structure. If we changed it, he'd probably get slower. Yeah. Any any therapist working with runners jumps upon any example of that for confirmation bias. We have the Priscajeptus and we have Paula Radcliffe's head and we have all of them as soon as we get it. But it happens with, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I always say to when I teach therapists, we always kind of note that person who comes in with neck pain and they have got one shoulder higher. And we forget all the people who come in with one shoulder higher and they haven't got any neck pain. They're coming with an yeah. issue. We don't note that down. Um, so we always get this fake kind of false reading, don't we? Um, yeah, it's a power. I think it's a very powerful uh, intuition that we have because I know in myself, as much as I've written about this, as much as I try to be aware of it, I guarantee you, if I notice an asymmetry in my body, there is something in my brain that starts trying to even it out or starts wondering whether it's a problem. And there's another part of my brain that says, that's not a problem. Stop doing that. But this can be a very kind of visceral feeling that you have. Yeah, 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 no, definitely. Especially if you're in pain and you start rubbing one side, and it's especially if you're in pain, then you notice those things much more. Oh hell, so much so. I mean, I talk from experience; it's incredible. Anyway, and and my final question to you is because I want to imagine that someone listening to this now, hopefully, are not aware of of your book. Maybe just from the things you said today, because for a therapist who was brought up traditionally and they could have done a course last year and they're going to be taught to look for symmetry and if there's no symmetry then maybe you need to do some kind of myofascial release to get that symmetry again or they're going to be uh, they're going to hear you say something like that um, structure might not be the um, issue for pain and there's a lot of things which are going to contradict 
what they've paid a lot of money and time invested in and how they present their results. Um, I'm thinking of a runner who is totally 100% biomechanics. And you've just said, well, if they understand now that complex means you can't just rely on the biomechanics because there's a lot of other factors there. What's your words of advice for, because I think the initial reaction for many therapists is, well, no, I can't be handling this. You just, you're just telling me that all of the stuff I teach is rubbish now. How do you help? Imagine you had a younger therapist in front of you who says, I hear what you're saying, but I'm very scared because I'm left with nothing. Yeah, well, Jason Silvernell has got the great uh, uh, phrase about that, which is crossing the chasm. So you, if you've, you're undergoing this paradigm shift in the way you think about things, how do you, you know, navigate, you know, it's like falling into a chasm. How do you get over to the other side? Even if you want to go over there, how do you cross over? I think maybe part of it uh, is to um, appreciate that a lot of what you're you're going to do actually does work. So, so let's say you're doing a massage or you're doing corrective exercise or you're doing stretching. Those things can help people. Evidence says those things might help just as well as uh, other things. What, you, what you've probably got wrong is not so much the fact that those things work, it's the fact that you've got the mechanism wrong. So let's start get so let's start thinking more about why this actually works and, if, and then if you know where the target is, you can hit it better. And so what this does for me is it opens up a very wide range of things that you could do with some with someone. I mean there's not just one so when people come in and they've got pain, uh, you, you we're kind of trained to think what's the one thing that's causing that pain? How do I find that one thing and intervene on that? In isolation from all the other things. The fact is there's probably many different things that are contributing to the pain and you can come at it from many, many, many different angles and, and many of them might be effective. So that's kind of good news. It's bad news in the sense that you don't know exactly what to do and you can't be the great expert. It's good news in the sense that many, many, many different things might help people. So if people have low back pain, core strengthening might help. Aerobic exercise might help. Resistance exercise might help. Education might help. Now you don't know which one to do. That's a bummer. But the fact is many of them are worth doing. Yeah, that's a great answer. And and yeah, yeah, Silvernail does nail it on the head with that. I was talking to you earlier today, it's actually on something you put um, on Instagram, I think. But yeah, a great mind as well. And another one, um, another reason for getting your book because the names you, you the people who you mix with and the, the list of acknowledgements is just a, who should I look at next? Who should I look at as well as Todd? It's like a little list of definitely people you should be reading, people out there. And if you are a younger therapist, I also always like adding that, like Todd says, it's not a case of you have to throw everything out and start from scratch. All the skills you've developed in terms of your passion to help people, your empathy, your communication, a lot of the stuff you do, the variability in testing people in different ways and putting them in positions and listening, and that's all still there. It's just like you say, it's if you know how something is more likely to work you can fine-tune what you're doing a little bit to get a better result so it can be scary but i think you've nailed it on the head yes yeah, it's, it's um it's not a case of starting from scratch at all which is good um right because i'm so interested in listening to you i've been ignoring the questions coming through so we'll just have five minutes if you're right with a few questions coming through becky demott horton nice to see you here thanks for joining us what's becky said i get the same when i see children skiing they just relish taking risks that would scare us adults so true isn't it um, well they're, they're this far from the ground and when they fall they don't get hurt so true. they can learn I, I learned to ski when i was 25 i had no chance of 
ever becoming an expert because of that. Because I didn't, I didn't have enough falls in me. I would have ended up in the hospital before I ever learned anything. Exactly. Yeah. Now there is something there. They are. Yeah. I'm, I'm six foot six. If I fall over ice skating or something, then I just have to disappear. It's more embarrassing than anything. But it's true. Yeah. There's a lot to be learned from children. Um, Daniel Gerber. Um, oh no, Steve here. Oh, your mate Stephen. Um, what's he have to say? He says. Todd, you wrote in your book that stride variability is a feature, not a bug of walking. Can you expand on this? Yeah. So let's let's imagine you you built a robot that walked with kind of a humanoid gait and it had this incredibly repetitive stride. You decide what's the optimum efficient stride, and you got so that it could repeat that exact same stride every single time. Uh, the problem with that robot is that it won't be able to navigate uncertain terrain so when you're and if you can you can google what robots walking around what's really amazing is when they can see something and then alter their stride in some way to step over it so so that's one reason you need variability when, when you're walking another reason is that um, if you have variability when you're doing something you're going to engage in more trials and errors and experimentation and figure out what works so when you when if you watch uh, the, there's research on people learning a new skill, the people that use more variable ways to try to you know throw a ball or throw a dart or, or learn some new skill, they get more information about what works, so they learn faster. Uh, so those, those are two good reasons why variability is a, a, a bug, not a feature. The other thing is is the robustness thing. Like let's say that you only know how to walk in one certain way and that involves you know being heavily reliant on some particular muscle well if that muscle gets injured you'd want an alternate strategy to be able to deal with that and we can do that we can you know i present examples in the books great athletes that have played without an acl amazing example tons of them joe namath tons of people mickey mantle uh, have done incredible things with no acl at all yeah Great answer. Stephen, if you want to follow that up, that's fair enough, but I think that makes total sense. Um, Daniel Gerber, let's have a look what you got to say, Daniel. I did say you could ask anything. Here we go. The playing while running makes me think of Tim Gabbett stuff. Definitely play, do things differently, prepares you for when it happens by accident. I have to read it for me. Uh, prepares you for when things happen by accident, which is kind of what Todd was saying now. If not what you've prepared for that injures you, it's what you haven't prepared for. Play and prepare. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. Good stuff. We like that, Daniel. Yeah. Um, I like that. It's not what. Yeah, it's good. Uh, he follows it up by saying the playing. Oh, no, he's just said the same thing twice. I'm sorry, Daniel. I'm sorry I didn't answer you straight away. He's Chris Kitson says, with my cynical hat on. Good on you, Chris. I admire your hat wear. Um, he says, on when considering, with my cynical hat on, when considering, can you do certain movements, especially intricate movements? I always end up asking, so what? Does it matter if you can or can't, if they're not meaningful tasks, et cetera? Well, I would say that um, one, of, one of the ideas in the book is um, we really neglect the importance of movements being meaningful to us as people. And so that I kind of recommend lots of different angles, lots of different dimensions that you can improve the way you exercise. And one of them is do stuff that's really meaningful to you. If it's meaningful to, for, for you to um, go out for a run or play golf or anything like that, do that thing more often. If it's fun, it gets done, and the psychological effect is 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 worth it. 
uh, going through workouts, even if you can get it done that feel meaningless to you, is not the same physiological experience or psychological experience as doing workouts that really feel deeply meaningful. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, there's a lot of information in the book on that. Um, I love you. I've got to find the quote you use. There's so many quotes I had to write them down. But when you were talking about the environment and things around you, it was all about, um, let's have a little look if I can find it quickly as we're getting towards the end. Uh, I probably won't. But it was, it, it, I compared it to like when a child first arrives in a playground, they just make use of what they've got. It's like using what's around them. And they use that bar for this and they'll jump. They don't know what a roundabout is, but suddenly they realize they can push it and jump it in or spin them around. You kind of suggest when you think of what exercise to do, try and find something that uses the environment around you. Yeah, yeah. And I guess as far as running goes, you know, I talk about the benefits of variability in your gait. One of them is you're, you, the more you vary your gait, the more you're going to have a good chance of finding the exact way of running that's most efficient for you. And that you can get into an environment that causes you to vary your gait if you're running on a trail or something like that. Sometimes you'll run a little bit up, sometimes a little bit down. You have to sidestep things. It'll force you to explore a greater way, range of ways to run than if you're running, you know, on a treadmill at exactly the same speed. So, you know, you, know, you change your speed, you change your running technique, you slow or faster, you change your technique. Uh, so if you engage in a process of really uh, exploring all the different ways to run, the quicker you will find, you know, unconsciously what works best for you. Good point. Very good. Um, Jason Fitzgerald is in the house. Wow. Big guns are out tonight. Jason Fitzgerald is here and says, I love this topic for endurance runners. Thanks, Todd and Matt, for highlighting the non-running side of things for us. Nice to see you, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Um, we are getting to the end, though. I don't want to keep you from your, must be past one o'clock where you are. Mike James says, great. Thanks both. Loved it very well. Every minute. Stay safe. Keep playing. Nice one, Mike. Keep playing. Hashtag keep playing. Uh, Luke Davis as well. Thank you very much. Um, I think we need to call it a night there. Um, so I'm conscious you've got other things to do. Thank you so much, Todd. Um, Thanks for having me, Matt. No, it's a pleasure. I've, I've, like I said, I've been a fan of yours for years and years. I've, I'm glad we finally had a chance to get together. Um, what have you got planned? I mean, it's difficult now with the uncertainty of the future, but if things do pick up and you're allowed out again and traveling, have you got any plans lined up for later in the year? Or Oh, traveling? Well, the, the, I don't know when that's going to happen again. My wife is really uh, a travel hound, and she, she, she is like constantly looking forward to the next vacation. And actually, I'm kind of relieved to be getting a little bit of a break. But I'll be off to some far-flung part of the world soon enough. Fantastic. Um, have you been out of the UK? I can't recall if you've presented over oh, I've here. I've been there. I've been. Uh, we've. She's got a sister in London, so I've been there many times. Have you presented? I, my wife has a sister in London, so yeah, I've been. Right. I've been to London. I'd, I'd like to get around the countryside a little bit more. Have you done any workshops or anything? Have you worked over here at all? No. No, all right. Well, we'll have to change that. We'll talk about that. <laughs> we need to get the UK public seeing you face to face. Um, brilliant. Okay. Well, um, thank you again once again. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to kind of um, throw you out of this room, but stay down in the lobby for a second. I'll come and say uh, thank you to you again in person. But okay. um, thank you so much. Thank you. Stay safe. Keep playing, everybody. Keep playing. Hashtag keep playing. Hashtag. There you go. What a lovely bloke. I knew it was going to be. Um, I do hope. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I missed out a few questions here today. I was just so enthralled with what Todd was saying. I didn't uh, keep my finger on the down button and there was a few more comments there.
but thank you so much for joining us people who did um if you're watching the podcast then i uh, hope you enjoy it as well obviously you can still ask questions which i will relay to todd or if you want you can ask them on facebook todd's still active on social media um but um you can always uh, send them in and i'll make sure todd gets them um, and uh, relay any answers back to you um so yeah thanks so much for joining us uh, this has been run chat live episode 42 um who have we got coming up next um, i always like to give you an idea especially as you're probably sitting there thinking well, i've got nothing else to do i'll put it in my calendar um i'm pretty sure that what we've got next is it is going to be matt fitzgerald is returning to talk about his latest book if you missed the first Matt Fitzgerald one about life as a marathon, um, I really heavily recommend you have a look at it. But Matt Fitzgerald will be back on Thursday, the 21st of May, to talk about his latest book, where basically he puts all us old geezers to shame because what that man has achieved at his, whatever it is, 40-something years of age, um, is quite incredible. Um, and he's going to talk about how he achieved that and the implications for when you are working with other runners in uh, opening up that capacity that veteran runners do actually have if they tap into it right that's it uh, i'm gonna love you and leave you thank you so much um if you do enjoy the show then please do leave a rating on itunes and um, apple Podcasts because it really does help us go up the listings and just reach more people we don't make any money out of it it's just a case of reaching more people that's why we do it so thank you uh take care stay safe and hashtag keep playing you're listening to run chat live podcast putting the evidence back into running injury and performance